Hi, I'm Ashley. I'm Jen. And I'm Sarah. And we are Unabridged, the podcast where teachers take on books. Join us each week for bookish episodes and check out our website, unabridgedpod.com, where you can find lots of new bookish content every week. Find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at unabridgedpod and message us there or see our website to get plugged into the unabridged community. You want opinions about books? We've got them. Hello, everyone. Welcome to our historical fiction episode. This is a category that we haven't talked a ton about on the podcast as a main episode, so we would like to talk about it today. Before we get started, we wanted to remind you that we have a newsletter that we release twice a month. Our first newsletter is just the things that you can expect coming from on a bridge during the month. And then the second one is a little bit more personal. We talk about some of our favorite things and it's a lot of fun. So we hope that you will subscribe to it. Just head to our website and you can subscribe there. Before we get started with the main discussion, let's start off how we always do and let's do our bookish check-in. Ashley, what are you reading today? So I am excited to share this one. It really grabbed my attention. This is Laura Dave's 800 Grapes. I chose this because for the Uncorked Reading Challenge, which is like the second challenge I'm doing this year, aside from Unabridged, one of the categories was a book that's set in a vineyard. So this is one I don't think I would have gravitated toward otherwise. But I, it was on the list for the recommended books and I had access to the audio. And so I was like, oh, I'll, I'll just try that. And I loved it. I mean, I listened to it over probably three days, which with my reading and every other part of my life right now is like pretty remarkable. And I just was really captivated. So the central character is Georgia, who is, she grew up on a vineyard with her family and she has two older brothers who are twins, Finn and Bobby. And at the opening part of the book, she is coming back home to the California vineyard, but she's been driving for like nine hours and she's in her wedding dress. <laughs> and so <laughs> she shows up at her brother's bar and you know that things have gone awry, but you don't really <laughs> know how that has happened yet. And so it's the unpacking of what led to that moment. And it also is a lot about, I think what really struck me about the book, I don't want to give anything away because I felt like a lot of it is about the secrets that you discover that each of the family members carries. But I think what I loved in the story was the focus on how much they all love each other and how even though they love each other and sometimes because they love each other, they don't know the right thing to do. And there's a lot of this, like, what is the right thing to do? And what does it look like when you love someone? What do you do for them? And so I just thought all that was really beautiful. But it also is the really lovely scenic area because she's on this vineyard. It's a family run one. So there's also this tension between the family style vineyard and then the kind of corporate take over everything, sell cheap wine mentality. And so there's a lot of contrast there too, as her parents are aging and they're trying to decide what to do with the vineyard and the kids don't really want it. So then, you know, the kids have become adults, the parents are ready to figure out what's next. 
And so it's a lot of that also. So, I mean, I, yeah, I just, I would highly recommend it. I, I'm totally entranced, you know, in what is going on. And like I said, I finished it yesterday. So I am cheating just a tiny bit, but I did want to share it because I just really devoured it. I mean, I really wanted to know, I think the print would have been great as well, but it had a lot of heart and a lot of movement in the story, but also just kind of asked some hard questions that I thought were really interesting. So again, that is Laura Dave's 800 Grapes. I really enjoyed that one. I'm trying to think. I read, I was thinking I'd read something else by Dave and I was going to recommend it, but now I can't think of what it is. Oh, I'm reading it now. I feel really dumb now. The last thing he told me, which I'm reading now for my book club <laughs> next month, is by Laura Dave. <laughs> it's my current read. One of my current reads. <laughs> it is a busy time of year, friend. I think that's okay. No, but I, I wondered about that because I have seen the covers, the style of the font and the design of the covers are very similar. So I couldn't quite remember the title, but I have seen it and I, I noticed yeah. it because the 800 Grapes cover is very similar. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I've, I've heard good things about that one too. I would definitely yeah. read more of hers. I mean, I really enjoyed this one. This one is really good so far. It's not the one I'm talking about today, I should say. So it wasn't that bad that I was looking at the document thinking, <laughs> huh, what else have I read by Laura Dave? But uh, yeah, so far it's really good. Sarah, you read it, right? Laura, the last thing you told me? The last thing you told me. Yes. Yes, I did. Yes, mm-hmm. I did read that. Yes. I really do want to read 800 grapes. I I've seen that a I lot think, of a lot of places and every time I'm really drawn to the cover. I think you would love it, Sierra, because I think it is like about the joy of wine and like how hard it is to make and the intensity of the work that goes into so it's 800 grapes go into a bottle of wine. I mean, that's where the title comes from. And I think it was really interesting to think about that perspective and just kind of the to admire the craft of creating wine. So yeah, I think you would love it. Yeah. I'm definitely going to check that one out. Jen, what are you reading? (laughs) Other than the last thing he told me, I I am also reading Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice. So this is a reread for me. I've read, this is the book of Austen's I've read the most, and it is part of my full year Austen buddy read and challenge. It's hashtag read Austin 22 if you're interested. And by the time this episode releases, I will have finished it, but I'm exactly at the halfway point right now. And as with the best rereads, diving back into this world is wonderful. It feels weird to give a synopsis for this one because I feel like most people know, but I will just say it is partially a romance between Elizabeth Bennett, who is the second of five sisters. And Fitzwilliam Darcy, who is this pretty crotchety, grumpy, (laughs) removed guy. And I would say it is an early enemies to lovers book. Although I imagine that classicists would fall over (laughs) having it described that way, but it is. And so Elizabeth and Darcy, from the first moment they meet, have a bunch of misunderstandings and so Elizabeth is part of a family because there are five daughters that her mother is desperate to get them married off. And so there are all of these mishaps with Elizabeth's older sister and with Elizabeth herself and all of these mismatches with other characters. Austin's wit is so on display in this book. There are characters that are so awful and the dryness of the criticism and the narration just makes me chuckle. Yeah, it's so much fun to read. And yet Elizabeth is this really empathetic character. And sometimes there are things she does that you just want to shake her because she just makes some really poor decisions or 
jumps in her, her first judgment of someone is so off. And of course I know where it's going. So you're like, no, don't do that. Anyway, but yeah, I'm really enjoying that one. And Again, just the joy of buddy reading books like this. I love hearing other people's perspectives. I think I said this when I talked about Sense and Sensibility in a bookish check-in, but it's so much fun because there are people who've never read Austin before, and there are people who've read it you know, dozens of times more than me. So we have this great range of experience in the group. There are people who are reading the annotated version, so they have these great historical tidbits to share. And yeah, it's just been a great experience rereading that one with a group. So that is Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice. And if you haven't read it, I highly, highly recommend that one. That's awesome. Last year for one of my stretch goals, I read a classic and that's the one I read because we know that I'm not the biggest fan of reading classics, but I did, I listened to it in audio and uh, Rosamund Pike narrated and it was, she was excellent. So I did enjoy it. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. But I, ha- right, Sarah, I haven't oh. read another, though. <laughs> so, <laughs> that is okay. That's what I was thinking, too, Sarah, is like, I, I read that one, and I did enjoy it, but I read it on print. And so when you said that about the audio, I was like, oh, maybe mm-hmm. I could get to Emma or some of the others if yeah. I did it on audio, because it does still feel enough like work. To uh-huh. <laughs> I mean, let's be honest. Like, I feel like I'm just like lazy about it. So I'll think about it. But if I don't have to, it's hard to make myself. But I think I would really enjoy it on an audio version. So yeah, Sarah, I think you would love Sense and Sensibility because it's about these sisters. And so it's, there are like romantic relationships in the book, but I think you would love that part. And people in the Buddy Read raved about that one on audio. I forget who the narrator was. It may have been Pike. Pike may have done that one too. I can't remember now. I may be wrong about that. She was excellent. So I can imagine that they would want her to do those because she has the British accent and she's just she does a really good job with all the voices and all that. So yeah, I think mm-hmm. that if she reads it, then I will consider it. Yes. <laughs> you can report back. I will. <laughs> oh my goodness. So Sarah, what are you reading? So we are recording this early. So I am actually reading an advanced copy of Jordan Calhoun's Piccolo is Black, a memoir of race, religion, and pop culture. If you read my bookish fave in January, this is one of my most anticipated reads this year. One of the five that I was hoping to get to this year and Lit Riot Press generously reached out to me when they saw that bookish fave and asked if I wanted an advanced copy. So I'm reading it. I'm really enjoying it. I have read Jordan's columns in the Atlantic and on Black Nerd Problems. And I knew that ahead of time that I enjoyed his writing. So I was super excited to start this. I'm not super far into it yet, but he writes about his life, but he tells it through a pop culture lens, which is really exciting for me because I love pop culture and I love memoirs. So this is like the perfect thing. Um, I love the title of this book because Piccolo is a character from Dragon Ball Z, which Jordan Calhoun is an unapologetic nerd. He loves all things nerd culture. So that, that that's where this title comes from. Um, Piccolo is black, but Piccolo is actually green, but <laughs> <laughs> because he is not human. But I really like so far in the book that because Jordan Calhoun has this huge love of pop culture and growing up in the 80s and 90s, he felt unrepresented in the pop culture he was consuming. So he discusses that in a really 
um, interesting way. There's a lot of humor and I'm just really enjoying it and I can't wait to finish it. So, but I haven't, like I said, I haven't gotten super far. We're recording this ahead of time. The book will have released April 26th, I believe. And so far I'm loving it and I will definitely be talking more about it once I'm finished with the whole book. So, so that is Jordan Calhoun's Piccolo is Black, a memoir of race, religion, and pop culture. That one sounds awesome, awesome, Sarah. I love black nerd problems. Yes. And um, and I Jordan's work on it, that he does in the Atlantic is so smart and thoughtful. And I just really enjoy reading what he writes. So his book is just like that. So if you if you look him up on the Atlantic or in Black Nerd Problems, then and you like that, then you'll definitely enjoy this book. All right. We are now on to our main discussion. And we are going to each share a historical fiction novel that we have enjoyed and would recommend. Jen, you want to start us off? Sure. So I am recommending Sarah Winman's Still Life. And I read this, I think it was my first buddy read of the year with Read with Tony. And I will admit that when it was chosen, I was a little miffed. So we always vote because I was like, oh my gosh, it's another World War II novel. And I've talked on the podcast before about how I have, I still Years later, I have some World War II fatigue. I went through a year when I felt like that was all I was reading. And so it takes a little bit to win me over to picking up a World War II novel again. But this one starts during World War II and then goes many decades after. So that is just sort of the the foundation for the book, which I absolutely loved. I This was a total five-star read for me. I just could not have loved it more. So it is pretty quirky. I would say it begins with, I don't even know that there's one protagonist, but I'll just say one of the protagonists is Ulysses and he is a soldier during World War II. He is in Tuscany and he meets this woman named Evelyn Skinner, who is a historian, but also maybe a spy. And they have this interesting interaction that just really resonates with both of them. And even though they are not together very long, they feel like they have this connection. It is not a romantic connection at all. Evelyn is an older woman. She is a lesbian who is traveling with this other woman who is incredibly annoying. And she's ready to just (laughs) like ditch her, but can't find a way to do it. And there's a lot of humor from the very beginning. So despite the horrible circumstances of their meeting, you just see that they are just kindred spirits. And it's, it's really sweet. And it's that sort of, it's sweet without being saccharine through the whole book. So after the war, Ulysses goes back to his home in London and he lives in this sort of little area that is this really close knit community. There's a guy who owns a bar who's grumpy and everybody just makes fun of and he is dating women and eventually they figure out he's dating them in like alphabetical order by their name. (laughs) So he dates not on purpose even, but it's just, they're like, have you noticed that he's like, going through the alphabet (laughs) and there's a woman named Peg who he Ulysses and Peg had this romantic relationship that is no longer there, but Peg is just super vibrant and everyone loves her, but she has some tragedy in her life that makes her this glamorous, charismatic, tragic figure. There's this older guy named Cressy who just is so wise and funny 
And oh my gosh, it's just like this. You just fall in love with these characters. There's a parrot named Claude who (laughs) becomes a character in the book. Uh, Not like a character like a person, but he does comment on things that are going on uh, periodically through the book. Anyway, so eventually Ulysses and a couple other people from the town end up moving to Florence. And there they get all wrapped up in this art scene. Uh, Ian Forrester makes an appearance at some point. Evelyn Skinner, because she's an art historian, is traveling to Florence. And you think throughout the book that she and Ulysses may be reunited. I will not spoil it and tell you whether they are, but they just, they keep having these close calls where they almost see each other again. It is just this book that is whimsical and quirky. It deals with some really sad things that happen. And yet again, it is just so loving and it ha- it has such grace for its characters who make mistake after mistake. And yet it's this really compassionate view of who they are. I, I just, well, you can tell because I'm going on and on about it. I just absolutely <laughs> loved it. And immediately after reading it, I picked up Sarah Winman's Tin Man because I knew I wanted to read more work by her. I haven't read it yet. But I just want to read her whole backlist because it's one of those that just captured my imagination and captured my heart. And I just want to read all the things by Sarah Winman now. So this one is Sarah Winman's Still Life, which absolutely I recommend. Oh, that sounds awesome. I really want to read it now, too. (laughs) I think you both would love it. I do, too. And and I'm glad that you shared it because I do think same that (laughs) I, I might have had a little bit of bias that would prevent me from picking it up without <laughs> knowing that, but that sounds great. Yeah, that yeah, sounds it's awesome. really good. Ashley, what book are you going to share? This is one I talked about on my bookish check-in when I was reading it, and I wanted to share it because I absolutely loved it and am really glad I read it. I will say about historical fiction in general that it is a genre that I have to stretch a little bit to read, and then every time I do, I'm always glad. So I don't know. <laughs> That is one of the many times that I have discovered that my preconceived notions about a genre are not accurate and that I should try to let go of them because I've read a lot of great books in the genre. So this is one I absolutely love. This was a five-star read for me. It was Rita Sapetti's The Fountains of Silence. And I spoke about this when I was reading it. This one is set in Madrid in 1957 and is during Franco's reign and as a dictator there. I talked a little bit about this on the check-in, but it's been a while. Our family lived in Madrid for all of the fall. It is a community we really love. I made a lot of connections to a lot of people I really love there. And so we've always had a heart for Spain because we've spent a lot of time there. But then for Madrid specifically, it is a city that I just really, really love. But it was so illuminating to read about what Franco's reign was like to learn more about it because I knew it happened, but in a pretty uninformed way. And a lot of the people that, so he lived till 1977. So a lot of the people who are just a little bit older than me that I'm interacting with in Spain were, were alive during this era. And so, you know, just thinking about how close it is to present time, for one thing, it's remarkable to me that Madrid is where it is now, considering what this was like. But it also was like, it wasn't very long ago. I mean, you know, it was a long reign and it also was not that far removed from our life. You know, I mean, it was just before I was born, basically. That is really striking to me as well. That Like that just wasn't that long ago. And it's in Europe and 
everyone knew this was happening. And yet he stayed in power that whole time until he died. So it really shows from two characters perspectives, an American and a Spaniard, what it's like. The American comes in, he's the son of an oil tycoon. His mother is Spanish. So he is bilingual. He's essentially a native Spanish speaker. And yet, of course, he's very much outside culturally. His mom had lived in Spain, but she has not been back since Franco was in power. So she's really removed from what it is like now in Madrid when they get there. He is passionate about journalism and photography, and he's a really talented photographer. But his dad, of course, wants him to go into the oil industry and to follow in his footsteps. So he lives this really comfortable, privileged life because his family is extremely wealthy, but he has this heart for telling people stories. He is very empathetic. He sees people suffering and wants to act on it and do something about it. So there's a lot of contrast between him having kind of a life of privilege, but also being rejected by his father because he wants to follow a different path that his dad does not support. And this feeling of wanting to address these inequities, a lot of which he benefits from in his own personal life. So you have him and then you have Anna and Anna works in the hotel where his family's living while they're in Madrid. And she and her siblings are the children of parents who supported the Republic. So they were murdered in two different ways, both of which were horrifying. And part of the dictatorship is a desire to silence people who have any connection to the Republicans who supported the democracy prior to Franco. And so there's just an ever-present feeling of fear. And the fear drives everything that Anna and her siblings do. And meanwhile, because they have this history, they continue to be persecuted and they continue to suffer. They suffer in where they live. They suffer because, I think I said this in the check-in, that their mom did get buried, but they have to pay for the property. And it's like renting a grave, essentially. And if they don't do that, they're going to dump her body in this field. I mean, it's just like the ways that Franco and his regime keep people impoverished, keep people in terror, keep people in check are very apparent in the book. And I think part of what I think Sepetis does so well is that Daniel is just clueless. I mean, completely ignorant about Anna's life. And so he is so well-meaning, but he has no idea like if he wants to have a coffee with her or you know, spend time with her. He has no idea the danger he's putting her in. So I just feel like there's I really appreciate the way Sepetti is able to show both the well-meaning intent of Daniel, whom you really love as a character, but also just how naive he is about what it is like for Anna and what her life is like and what she must continue to do. So like in his mind as like, oh, we're going to, this is simple. Like I can take you away. We can do all these things, but like, that's not the reality. She can't just get a passport. She can't leave the country. And so I just think there's a lot of that on the personal level between the two of them. But then also you get to see some of the tradition of bullfighting and how that is such an integral part of Spanish culture and how people view the toreros as being, you know, kind of saint-like. I mean, that they're just really these like amazing people and that that is one pathway out of poverty is to try to pursue this 
pathway to being a bullfighter. And so that's a subplot in the book, but is such an interesting cultural component that's tied into the story. And then there's all this stuff with adoption and babies and how the babies are given up for adoption, what that seems to be and what it really is. And I thought all of that was horrifying, but also illuminating again to just the long range impact of what this means for Spain, what it was like in Madrid and the ways that it continues to filter into today's world. And so, I mean, I was totally swept away. I should say this is young adult historical fiction. And I just think Sepetis does that so well that she, it is definitely very accessible for teens. Anna and Daniel are teenagers on the older end of being teenagers. And so I think that it's really that enriches the story in a lot of ways for me. I thought that that really helped to show like what it's like for young people. And again, that contrast between what their two lives are like and how removed they are from each other. So I loved all that. I loved the photography. There's a lot of really beautiful parts. And actually I was thinking this one has some mixed media in it. It has actual um, transcripts and things like that from historical documents from the period. So for the unabridged challenge, this would actually be a good choice for the one where we said the non-traditional genre, because while it is historical fiction, it has all these really interesting parts woven that are documents that made the story more interesting. So again, that is Ruta Sepetti's The Fountains of Silence. And as I'm sure you could tell, I absolutely loved it. Mm-hmm. I love that one too. I, she is just so unmatched for me with why historical fiction. I have Loved every single, I haven't read quite all of them. I still need to read Salt from the Sea, which I think was our first. I still have not read that. And she has a new one out that I haven't gotten to yet. But. Yeah, I haven't read the new one. And I've heard good reviews, but I heard that it was really sad. So I tread carefully on that one. And I mean, this one is hard. I think there are a lot of parts that are really hard, but I felt like it ends in a pretty hopeful way. And so, yeah. Yeah, she's so great. I haven't read any of hers yet. I, I get. I think it's because of the, I just don't do not gravitate toward historical fiction. It, yeah, it, yeah. I don't know why. For me too, but I, it, but again, each time I read them, I really have enjoyed them. Especially recently, like each time I haven't read any that I didn't like. So then I'm yeah. like, oh, I just have kind of a negative bias against it. But I haven't had any experiences to back it up, really. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Sarah, what about you? What's your recommendation? I'm so excited to recommend <laughs> this book. I was struggling with what I was gonna going to share for this category. And I came across Kim Faye's Love and Saffron. And this is a, this is also would work for our unusual genre category because it is epistolary. It is set in the 1960s, early 1960s. It is told through letters between two women. One is 59-year-old Imogen, and what that's one woman, and she lives in Washington State. And then the other woman is Joan, and she is 27 and lives in Los Angeles. And the correspondence starts out because Joan is a fan of Imogen's column that she writes in a publication, she talks about landscapes and all of these things, and she and Joan really likes her column. So she writes sort of a fan letter, but from that fan letter becomes this amazing friendship between these two women, one who's older, one who is younger, and what 
develops is this love of food and sharing recipes. And so Joan is really well versed in flavors. She's traveled. She loves to cook. So she sends, it starts off with a packet of saffron. So she, the, in the, her, one of her first letters, she sends Imogen a packet of sa- saffron. And from that, she starts sharing with Imogen all of this like worldly knowledge of cuisine and Imogen kind of acts as this confidant and Joan has a mother who is involved, but also almost like a second mother. And it's just such a beautiful, it's just such a beautiful friendship that it develops over letters. And one part of the book, Imogen is talking, is sending a letter and she's talking about how Joan is the only person she writes to because everybody else wants to use the telephone and Mm. that she finds it just so much more impersonal than the letter because because when she she's like when I'm on the tell and it just reminded me of this day and age even though it's written in the 60s because she says that the telephone is more impersonal because she can play solitaire or look at the newspaper while she's on the telephone but when she writes a letter she has to be totally immersed in what she's writing and so she feels it's much more personal and I was just like that was written this this is written in this for in the 60s but i feel like that's the same today you know like we are always so distracted and even when we're face to face with people because of our phones i just thought that was interesting it also brings in all of these really major historical events that are happening during this time period like president K- kennedy's assassination and how both of the women feel and how the country feels after that it th- there's um, talk about the feminist movement and civil rights. And it, so there's all these like things that are happening, ha- happening historically. And I mean, the cold war is happening during this time. So there's all these historical events, but what that are mentioned and have the, these huge impacts on the women's life, but what shines through is their friendship and their love of food and sharing with each other. And it's just, I just love it. And it's very short. It's only about 200 pages. The audio is only like three hours and 45 minutes. Audio is great because there's a couple of narrators so that you get two different voices. And I total a five-star read for me. I just loved it. It is like the perfect historical fiction book for me. So I highly recommend it. I think, I think if you love historical fiction, if you love food novels, if you love epistolary novels, it's, it's super quick. It's really concise and um, well done. And I just loved it. So that is Kim Fay's Love and Saffron. Wow. I hadn't heard anything about that one, Sarah. That sounds awesome. Yeah. Sounds I had, really good. I just, ha- um, a group that I'm in, they, we were talking about food novels and we, people started listing and that one came up and then I looked at it and I'm like, I'm reading that one. So, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. I just, I've, I really enjoyed it. It is excellent. That's awesome. That's great. Well, before we move on, I did want to mention that I was really happy Jen chose Meg Medina's Burn Baby Burn for one of our buddy reads this spring. And if you didn't read that one, that's another YA historical fiction book that I absolutely thought was great. And I just, I enjoyed kind of, it reminded me, Sarah, when you were talking about the events are happening and they are historical, but then the story is very much 
of you know the story yeah, <laughs> like it's the story of the characters and that was how burn baby burn was is that there are these notable historical things happening but those are secondary to the primary story mm-hmm. in some ways and so that reminded me of that but i really enjoyed well, that it was one too. so nice to read a book from a different era that <laughs> i i just have not read much historical fiction set in the 70s yeah. and so that was interesting too. And it sounds like that with like early, I was trying to think if I've read much in the early sixties, Sarah, when you were talking about love and saffron, maybe I have, but I can't think of anything offhand. So that's nice to hit some, hit some of those new eras as well. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Well that concludes our discussion on historical fiction. We hope that you will share with us on social media, some of your favorite historical fictions. If you read any of our suggestions, please let us know. I do know that some of you have read Love and Saffron because I did post about it on the unabridged feed and I had several people say that they just loved it. So I also did. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. before we end, we're going to do our give me one. And today we're going to say a decade you would time travel to. And we will start with Jen. First, let me just acknowledge that I feel like this is always problematic because (laughs) history has some really bad stuff. So I'm assuming that we were talking about like the high points of any decade. And I will just say I have a soft spot for the 1920s, probably partly because of the great Gatsby, even though there are (laughs) things that happen in Gatsby. But I think that, you know, that's, there's a lot of the rise of the feminist movement and a lot of reconceptualization of how we see different groups of people. And so, yeah. I think the 20s would be fun. Ashley, what about you? Yep, I agree. I was like, which era had the least horrible things happening? And then I was like, maybe you just have to let go of that. Because I think that's what stays when you talk about time is like the bad things. But I'm going to go with the 1960s. My parents were older when they had me. So they were like, you know, young adults basically in the 60s. And I would just be so fascinated to see what it was like when they were, you know, new to adulthood Mm -hmm. and what that time period felt like. So. I'm going to go with that one. What about you, Sarah? I'm going to go with the 50s, 60s era, that time period after both world wars are over and people are feeling more, I guess, plucky. (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) I do, but I do, like, again, I acknowledge that there are some terrible things happening during Mm -hmm. those periods, but I've also always been fascinated with, like, the 50s era nuclear family and, like, how, like, I feel like maybe if I were in that era, I would have been, I think that I've always thought I would like to be able to stay home, do, like, Mm -hmm. kind of do more traditional roles, as a mother and wife, which is very archaic and I'm still a feminist, but I do think that if I were in that era, that that would have probably been, I just would like to dabble in that, but I think maybe <laughs> I'd be able to come back. To where uh, <laughs> I will just say, if you're looking for a good decade book, I just read Chuck Klosterman's the nineties. And as a child of the nineties, that was a big old nostalgia trip. So I don't have to time travel to it. Although it is interesting to look back now. And anyway, it it was really good. So I wouldn't like all the packaged meals in the fifties though, that everybody and the smoking. So Mm -hmm. maybe I'm going to talk myself out of the (laughs) fifties. We're going to (laughs) close. I do want to say when I saw this as our give me one, it did give me a lot of anxiety because I didn't know. I was like, I don't know what's, what is a good answer. Uh, I was like, which one, which one? And then I was like, should I go to the future? And then I thought, I don't know that I want to find out what that's going to look like. So, (laughs) 
Well, we will post this on Monday for you to give us your give me one in decade, the decade you would like to time travel to. We would also like to know if it also gives you anxiety to think about this question <laughs> as it did for us. Thank you for listening. And as a reminder, you can always hit us up on social media. We'd love to talk to you about all things books and reading. So just find us there. Thanks for listening. Do you have comments or opinions about what you heard today? We'd love to hear them. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Unabridged Pod or on the web at unabridgedpod.com for ways to support us. To get more involved, you can sign up for our newsletter, join a buddy read, or become an ambassador. Thanks for listening to Unabridged.